Section 33 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Braganza, Chapter 3, Part 3. The dismal year of 1680 closed with this tragedy. Early in 1681, a fresh cause of disquiet to Queen Catherine presented itself. A new performer in the Popish plot information scheme appeared on the scene of the name of Fitz Harris, who, after accusing the Duke of York of various absurdities, pretended that Don Francisco de Mayo had told him that Her Majesty was engaged in the design of poisoning the king. Fitz Harris was a pensioner of the Duchess of Portsmouth, who was deeply in league with Shaftesbury, Sunderland, and that faction, who, playing on her boundless ambition, continued to feed her with hopes of making her son the king's successor. The king, however, perceiving that Fitzharris was to be employed for the destruction of both his consort and his brother, took some pains to circumvent the party who were confederated to bring him before the parliament as a pretense for the attack on those exalted persons. Charles summoned the Parliament to meet at Oxford on the 21st of March, and accompanied by Queen Catherine, left Windsor on the 14th, escorted by a troop of horse guards. They traveled with all the pomp befitting royalty, and were received by the High Sheriff on the confines of the county, and at Wheatley by Lord Norris, the Lord Lieutenant of Oxfordshire, and so conducted with every mark of honorable respect to Oxford. They were greeted with loyal enthusiasm by the university, and welcomed with addresses, rejoicings, and feastings. No one knew how to act the part of a popular sovereign with a better grace than Charles II. He manifested his grateful sense of the affection, testified for his person on this occasion, with all the heartiness which the momentous crisis of his fortunes required. It seemed, indeed, as if the struggle between him and his parliament was about to be fought, not with sharp wits, but with drawn swords. For Shaftesbury and the popular party came into Oxford in rival pomp, and more than equal force, as regarded the crowds of armed retainers who followed them, wearing round their hats ribbons with the inscription, No Popery, No Slavery. The royal epithets of Whigs and Tories had just been devised for each other as terms of vituperation by the court party and the opposition. They were pretty nearly synonymous with those of Cavalier and Roundhead in the preceding reign, though many words might be wasted in explaining the shades of difference, if the limits of this work would permit. The king opened the parliament in person on the 21st. His first parliament sat 18 years, and was called the Long Parliament, having exceeded in duration any that ever sat before or since. This parliament was even yet more remarkable for its brevity, and was with equal propriety named the short parliament, for it lasted only six days. Charles wanted money, this parliament wanted blood. He made up his mind to proceed against Fitzharris as a libeler of royalty and a disturber of the peace. They were determined to use him and his falsehoods for the purpose of keeping the passions and prejudices of the multitude in a state of murderous effervescence. In a word, the exclusion of the heir presumptive of the throne and the fall of the queen were to be attempted once more by means of this new tool, who, to outward appearance at any rate, bore a less revolting aspect than the train of apostates, felons, and convicts 
whom they had arrayed against the royal wife and brother, since Fitzharris, though himself an unprincipled adventurer, was the son of a brave and loyal cavalier. He was, withal, a member of the Church of Rome, and doubtless, great results were anticipated from his depositions. The commons determined that the judges of the court of King's Bench should not try him, but that he should be impeached, when they would have the opportunity of giving his disclosures any color they pleased, for the crimination of others. The lords opposed them. A furious altercation ensued, and the commons postponed that question, and revived the exclusion bill. That bill was introduced on Saturday, March 26th. On Monday the 28th, the king, who had taken his resolution, put on his robes, and was conveyed in his sedan chair to the house, drawing the curtains closed to conceal his crown, which he carried on his knee, or between his feet, according to Burnett. He entered the House of Lords unattended, almost unannounced, took his seat on the throne, placed the crown on his head, and bade the usher of the black rod, summon the commons, and the moment they entered, told them, that proceedings which began so ill could not end in good, and commanded the Lord Chancellor to declare the Parliament dissolved. Before they had time to recover from their consternation, the king and queen had entered their traveling carriage, and, escorted by their guards, were on the road to Windsor. The next day they returned to Whitehall. If Charles had used equal courage and energy at the beginning of the pretended disclosures of the popish plot, instead of weakly sailing with the stream, and permitting his name to be used to sanction proceedings from which both his judgment and conscience revolted, a sea of innocent blood might have been saved, and all the miseries that were inflicted on the relatives of Oates' victims. He now followed up his victory by bringing Fitzharris to trial for high treason, who was convicted and condemned. When under sentence of death, this person offered to discover those who had induced him to accuse the Queen, the Duke of York, and the Earl of Danby, if his sentence might be changed into perpetual imprisonment. He was examined before the council, and affirmed that the sheriffs, Cornish and Bethel, with Treby the recorder, had persuaded him to invent the fictions touching the popish plot, and that Lord Howard of Escrick had written the libel for which he stood condemned. The king would not pardon him, and he was executed. The same day, the unfortunate Plunkett, the Roman Catholic titular primate of Ireland, was brought to the scaffold. He was the last victim of the party who had shed so much innocent blood under the pretense of the popish plot. The Earl of Essex, who had been the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, was touched with remorse at the idea of the judicial murder of this harmless old man, and solicited the king to pardon him, assuring him that, from his own knowledge, the charge against him could not be true. The king indignantly replied, Then, my lord, be his blood on your own conscience. You might have saved him if you would. I cannot pardon him, because I dare not. A bitter truth but degrading to the lips of majesty. A little moral courage ennobles both the monarch and the man, a thousandfold more, than the mere physical firmness of temperament, which enables him to stand the fire of a battery unmoved in the front of battle. Charles II and the Earl of Essex were both the sons of good men, men who had both testified on the scaffold that they preferred death to acting in violation of their consciences, how deeply would it have added to the sufferings of Charles I and his devoted friend, the virtuous Lord Capel, could they have imagined that such communings could ever take place between their sons and on such a subject? 
Charles II stifled the upbraidings of self-reproach in the society of his profligate associates, yet the deeply indented lines of misanthropic melancholy with which his Saturnine countenance is marked, but ill accord with his popular title of the Merry Monarch. The man's face tells another tale. The Earl of Essex, a person of virtuous inclinations, but weak intellect, an irritable temper and feeble constitution, had been made the tool of a remorseless party, and having consented to things which conscience could not in cooler moments justify, he became, when left in solitary hours, a prey to his own reflections, and finally a victim to constitutional despondency and sinful despair. Henry, Earl of Clarendon, when speaking of the number of lives that had been taken away on the pretense of the popish plot, said, all honest men trembled when they reflected how much innocent blood had been spilt upon it. Six Irish witnesses, five of whom were Protestants, now gave evidence of Shaftesbury having suborned them to accuse the Queen and the Duke of York falsely, together with the Duke of Ormond and the Chancellor of Ireland. A tissue of villainy was unveiled by their disclosures in a happy hour for the Queen, for this unprincipled politician, her relentless and really unprovoked enemy, was now disarmed of the power of offering her further injury. His boldness forsook him when the warrant for his committal was signed, and the rabble, who had before hooted his victims on their way to trial and execution, and beaten their witnesses, now shifting with the tide of fortune, pursued him to the tower with yells of execration. The Duchess of Portsmouth had disgusted all the world, but her political allies, Shaftesbury, Russell, and Sunderland, and the minor members of their party, by her intrigues with Fitzharris, at whose trial she and her maid, Mrs. Wall, figured as witnesses. She had deeply offended the king, and was fain to retire with her friends, the Earl and Countess of Sunderland, to their seat at Althorpe, while the queen enjoyed the satisfaction of going with her royal husband to Chatham and Sheerness, without the bitter alloy of this insolent woman's company. Charles appeared desirous at this time of making some atonement to Catherine for his former neglect by the affectionate attention and kindness with which he treated her. This change, which ought to have been regarded with pleasure by all true friends of their king and country, was contemplated with uneasiness by men whose hearts the demon of party had hardened against every good feeling and virtuous sympathy. Mr. Sidney, in a letter to the Prince of Orange, dated June 28th, says, I delivered a compliment from your highness to the Duchess of Portsmouth, which she took extremely well, but it will do you little good, for she hath no more credit with the king, and these ministers are persuading the king to send her away, and think by it to reconcile themselves to the people. Thus we see the decline of this vile woman's political influence, which had been no less disgraceful to the king than pernicious to the realm, is regretted by the tool and spy of William, who adds, but which is most extraordinary is the favor the queen is in. If the king had persevered in the resolution he had formed at that time of seeing the Duchess of Portsmouth no more and devoting himself to his virtuous consort, there would have been an end of buying and selling places in the cabinet or bartering state secrets and measures to foreign powers. Unfortunately, Charles's evil habits were too deeply rooted to be lightly shaken off. He was capable of virtuous impulses, but they were unsupported by sound principles, and therefore of an evanescent nature. He had sternly recommended the Duchess of Portsmouth on her reappearance at court, 
to try the bourbon waters for the benefit of her health. This advice, and the tone in which it was given, amounted to a sentence of banishment. Her absence was, however, only temporary. She had friends about the royal person, who effected a reconciliation in evil hour between this national nuisance and the king, and in the course of a few months, her influence was as great as ever. Her cupidity wrought on Charles to permit the return of his brother to court, whence she had been the means of persuading his majesty to banish him, at the desire of her colleagues in the opposition. The presence of the heir presumptive to the throne gave, however, a greater air of comfort and union to the royal family. The king, queen, and duke go on Monday, writes Lord Arlington, to see the Britannia launched at Chatham and return to sleep at Windsor on Wednesday. These days they have made a shift to pass at Whitehall, notwithstanding the buildings there. Charles II was never so happy as when superintending the labors of architects or shipwrights. Under his auspices, the metropolis rose, like a phoenix, in improved glory, from the funereal flames of old London, in an unconceivably short space of time, to the admiration of all Europe. Charles II was desirous of restoring the ancient splendor to the once royal city of Winchester, by building a palace on the site of the old castle, in order to reside there with his court, a part of the year, as the Norman and Plantagenet sovereigns had formerly done, the neighborhood of Southampton and Portsmouth, rendering it very agreeable to his love of maritime and naval matters, and for field sports, its contiguity to the new forest gave it peculiar advantages. A plan of this projected palace was made, with an estimate of the probable expense, which was calculated at £35,000. It was commenced, but left unfinished. When the narrow revenue of Charles II is considered, it appears scarcely credible how many stately buildings were erected, and noble national institutions founded and endowed during his reign, which may truly be regarded as an Augustan era, for the encouragement of science, literature, the arts, and architecture. At his restoration, he found the nation exhausted by a long civil war, and the oppressive taxation of the protectorate, in debt, and those branches of trade allied to ornamental art, which bring employment to the higher classes of artisans and mechanics, wholly extinguished by the semi-barbarism into which the state of society had retrograded during the absence of a settled monarchical government. Civilization had gone back many degrees between the years 1640 and 1660. The next twenty years saw the foundation of the Royal Society and the Observatory at Greenwich, an institution for the honorable maintenance of military veterans in their old age at Chelsea College, the regular organization of the Navy, the establishment of the most lucrative commercial relations between England and all parts of the world, and the East India Company rising into a mighty power, which owes the commencement of its territorial importance to the marriage treaty between Charles and Catherine of Braganza. Religious toleration, though treated by the bigots of that age as a crime, was an object which Charles II was desirous of effecting. The horrible statute for burning heretics was abolished by him. Had he but imitated the conjugal virtues and purity of conduct which adorned his father, the name of this prince might have been classed with some of the ablest of our royal legislators. But as he was incapable of self-government, history has, of course, told a different tale. 
the queen's pecuniary straits in consequence of the want of punctuality of the officers of the revenue in paying her income are noticed by the earl of arlington in a letter to her former lord chamberlain chesterfield june twenty eighth sixteen eighty two our receivers says he promised to accommodate themselves in some measure to our propositions for bringing part of the money in sooner in order to her making the present yearly income answer the yearly charge yet my lord clarendon her treasurer is not well satisfied with it and though all their accounts be declared yet he says he is not ready with his but will quickly be so which augments the queen's displeasure towards him Catherine was so unreasonable as to consider her treasurer accountable for the deficiencies of her receipts, and she commenced a long and vexatious suit against him for the arrears in which she was soon after left at the demise of the crown. Her income had been considerably augmented since the death of the queen mother, and at this time amounted to fifty thousand pounds per annum when she could get it. The following elegant little poem was addressed to Her Majesty by Waller on New Year's Day, 1683. She had then been married nearly one and twenty years, and if we may rely on the assertions of the courtly bard, time had dealt very gently with her. Waller is, however, the most complimentary of poets. What revolutions in the world have been? How are we changed since first we saw the queen? She, like the sun, does still the same appear right as she was at her arrival here. Time has commissioned mortals to impair, but things celestial is obliged to spare. May every new year find her still the same, in health and beauty as she hither came. When lords and commons, with united voice, the infanta named, approved the royal choice, first of our queens, whom not the king alone, but the whole nation, lifted to the throne. With like consent and like desert was crowned, the glorious prince that does the Turk confound, victorious both his conduct wins the day and her example chases vice away though louder fame attend the martial rage tis greater glory to reform the age poor catherine her example as far as it went was good but small it must be confessed was its effect in reforming a court where virtue was so much out of fashion that it was regarded as a reproach rather than a merit from a passage in Evelyn's diary, we find that Catherine of Braganza occasionally walked with her ladies on fine summer nights. It happened once, he says, when he was spending the evening with Lady Arlington, at the time she was mistress of the robes, an office which gave the noble lady by whom it was filled the odd title of groom of the stole. Just as her ladyship and her guests had sat down to supper, word was brought that the queen was going to walk in the park it being nearly eleven o'clock on which the countess rose up in haste leaving her guests to sup without her as the duties of her place required her to be in attendance on her royal mistress it was on the eighteenth of june sixteen eighty three that catherine and her ladies took this nocturnal promenade just four days after the discovery of the rye house plot so called from the ancient mansion at the rye in hertfordshire belonging to the conspirator rumbold where seditious meetings had been held and a project devised to shoot the king and the duke of york on their return from newmarket they being very slenderly attended the king's house at newmarket accidentally taking fire great part of it was destroyed which caused the royal brothers to return unexpectedly to london two days before the appointed time they thus escaped the danger which impended over them 
The conspirators were wont to designate the king as the blackbird and the duke as the goldfinch when discussing this scheme for their assassination. Charles, on account of his swarthy complexion, was signified by the blackbird. There was also a plot for a general rising throughout England and Scotland, in which many of the popular leaders were involved, especially the Duke of Monmouth, who purchased his pardon by betraying his confederates, but as soon as he had got his pardon, he denied what he had disclosed. It was for this plot that Russell and Sidney were brought to the block. It is doubtful whether they had anything to do with the assassination scheme, but certain that it was their intention to involve the kingdom in a civil war. Charles took prompt and deadly vengeance on some of those who had compelled him to shed the blood of the venerable Lord Stafford and the other victims of the late conspiracy against his queen and brother. It has been finally observed by Macpherson with regard to the proceedings of Charles when the opportunity of retaliation was given him. Those who have accused him of too much severity have done him more honor than his character deserved, by expecting from him that moderation, which is sought in vain in the most virtuous of his political opponents. Charles was deeply incensed against Monmouth for having enleagued himself with his enemies, and also for his conduct during the business of the Popish plot, in which his servant had been brought forward with a false deposition, tending to involve the queen's name once more. Yet Catherine, acting the part of a good Christian, not only forgave him herself, but interceded for him with his father, and also with the Duke and Duchess of York. Monmouth, in a private diary found in his pocket, after his defeat at Sedgemoor, acknowledged that his pardon was obtained by the good offices of the Queen, the King having told him so in a private interview, and that he had taken very kindly of Her Majesty, and had expressed himself very thankful to her on the subject. In October died Catherine's eldest brother, the deposed king of Portugal, and the whole court and city put on the deepest mourning out of respect to her majesty. The year 1684 commenced with the severest frost ever known. The king and queen both went to the fair that was held on the frozen Thames, on which occasion an ox was roasted whole at a fire made on the ice. It was a winter of intense misery to the people, on account of the dearness of food and firing, and the interruption to trade, from the navigation being entirely stopped. In the following November, the Queen's birthday was commemorated with unwanted splendor. There were fireworks on the Thames before Whitehall, with pageants of castles, forts, and other devices, especially the King and Queen's arms and mottoes, all represented in fire, as had never before been seen in England. There were besides several fights and skirmishes, both in and on the water, which actually moved a long way burning under the water, and now and then appearing above it, giving reports like muskets and cannon, with granados and innumerable other devices. This grand display is said to have cost 1,500 pounds. The evening concluded with a ball, where all the young ladies and gallants danced in the great hall. The court had not been so brave and richly apparelled since His Majesty's restoration. It was one of the last bright days of his life and reign, now fast hasting to a close. Excessive gambling had become, through the evil influence of the duchesses of Portsmouth and Mazarin, one of the prevailing vices of the court. Not that Charles or his brother were addicted to deep playing, or pursued cards otherwise than as an amusement. Queen Catherine was fond of playing ombre and quadrille, the latter game, with his matadors and spadas, bearing a quaint analogy to the chivalric struggle of her ancestors with the Moors, as well as to the bullfights of modern times. 
carrying her back in fancy to the land of her birth and its national associations. If she played, it was for the sake of the pastime rather than the stake. But the Duchess of Portsmouth had been known to lose 500 guineas at a sitting, and the Countess of Sunderland complains in one of her letters that her husband had lost much greater sums than that. No wonder that the bribes of France and Holland were alternately accepted by persons with propensities of so ruinous a nature. The evening of February 1st, 1685, the last Sunday that Charles II was permitted to spend on earth, the great courtiers and other dissolute persons were playing at Bassett, round a large table, with a bank of at least two thousand pounds in gold before them. The king, though not engaged in the game, was to the full as scandalously occupied. Sitting in open dalliance with three of the shameless wantons of his court, the duchesses of Portsmouth, Cleveland, and Mazarine, and others of the same stamp, while a French boy was singing love songs in their glorious gallery. Six days after, pursues our author, all was in the dust. The queen was not mentioned as being present on that occasion. She was probably engaged with her ladies in attending one of the services in her chapel or performing her private devotions in her own apartments, while this scene of inexpressible luxury, profaneness, dissoluteness, and all forgetfulness of God was acting in the presence chamber, unchecked by the restraining influence of so virtuous a princess as Catherine, for there is an involuntary respect which even the most profligate of persons are compelled to pay to the pure in heart. The king, who was far from well, has scarcely tasted food all that day. At night, he went to the apartments of the Duchess of Portsmouth, where he called for spoon meat. A porringer of some kind of soup was prepared for him, but not liking the taste of it, he said, it was too strong for his stomach, and eat very little of it, a circumstance that might very easily have fixed on the duchess the suspicion of having poisoned the king, an imputation which she and some of her confederates afterwards, shamelessly and without a shadow of evidence, endeavored to cast on his brother, the Duke of York. The king, who can wonder at it after such orgies, passed a feverish and restless night. He rose at an early hour, and occupied himself some time in his closet before dressing. To his attendants he appeared drowsy and absent, his gait was unsteady, and his speech imperfect. He often stopped in discourse, as if he had forgotten what he intended to say, of which he himself became sensible at last. About eight o'clock, having finished dressing, he was attacked by a violent fit of apoplexy, as he came out of his closet into his bedchamber. The Earl of Aylesbury caught him as he fell, suggested that he should be bled, and went to fetch the Duke of York. Dr. King, a skillful physician and surgeon, was in the drawing-room, and hastened to his assistance. Perceiving the urgency of the case, he took upon himself the responsibility of bleeding the king, well knowing that if he waited for the preliminary ceremonies, the royal patient would be past hope. Not having a lancet with him, he opened a vein in his majesty's arm with a penknife, declaring at the same time that he cheerfully put his own life in peril in the hope of saving the king. The blood flowed freely, but the blackness and distortion of the features continued till a cautery was applied to the patient's head. End of section 31